week, I just encourage you to go online to our website and you can watch it now. We're actually, uh, we, we're videoing uh, our, our messages and they're available online so you can watch. They're usually up two, three days after the weekend service, so uh, go check that out. Um, but really what's happened is we're talking about this idea of, of God giving us dreams and, and somehow life happens or, or things happen, stuff happens, and we lose the dream. The dream gets stolen, and we need to dream again. And so we're talking about how we can do that when, when it doesn't seem to be fulfilled like it should be or like it could be. And so we're using Joseph as a springboard to have a conversation about how we can dream again as individuals. And so that's where we're at in this whole series. Here's, here's our key text. Our key text is in Proverbs chapter 13. Verse 12, we do a key text every series so that we can try to memorize uh, specific texts of Scripture that might help us in, in times. Here, here, let me just kind of take a little step aside here for a moment. As you memorize Scripture, it's an amazing process that you would be in the middle of a situation in life, and that Scripture that you memorize will come back. I believe that is the work and the partnership with the Holy Spirit. And so as you give yourself to memorizing a scripture, which I would encourage you to do the key text, memorize it, just make it part of who you are, you'll be surprised at how many times that verse will come back into your life and be a part of your story. And so that's why we put it out there. Uh, here's what it says. It says, hope deferred. Deferred means I'm, I'm basically giving up, but I'm pushing it off. I'm not embracing it right now. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But... And I love this. A dream fulfilled is a tree of life, is a tree of life. I did a little study on that little phrase, tree of life, and just kind of you know, went and said, okay, where's this phrase? I kind of knew where it was going to be at. But if you go to Genesis, there's two trees. In Genesis, there's a tree of life and there's a tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord says, hey, you can, you can have all day long the tree of life, but don't go over and get a hold of that tree of good and evil because it won't be good, right? I mean, that's that thing. And, and they didn't, right? You know the whole story, Adam and Eve. They say, hey, I want to be a part of that. They took of the tree, and it caused a whole bunch of misery. And then if you fast forward, though, that's the tree in the, in the garden. You fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation, and you see that God once again has a tree of life in heaven. So here's the point. It's the same idea and concept is that God has an intended. I've got a real echo thing going on here. I don't know if it's just me up here or if you, you guys hear it too. You, okay, you guys are doing it too. All right. Um, that God has this intended life for us, and it revolves around us fulfilling the dream that he has for our lives. That, that's that idea, that God has this incredible story that he wants to unveil and unfold in your life, and it's this tree of life, it's this fruitfulness, it's this joy, this happiness, this goodness that God has for us in relationship to him. And so that's kind of all in that verse there. Here, here's a couple real quick fill in the blanks. I just threw them out there because I was thinking about it this week. A dream fulfilled creates a satisfied life, but a dream deferred or given up on creates a miserable life. And see, I think a lot of us, we'd have to ask ourselves, what part of the story am I living? Am I living in a miserable position or in a satisfied position? And it could easily be the connectedness, if you will, to the dream that God has for your life. In other words, am I living the way God intended or am I living something else? 
What's happening in the story of my life? And so last week we kicked, up, we kicked off the series and we looked at some big ideas regarding the God dream, which is different than my dream, the God dream that he has for our lives. We talked about the context of Joseph and how he was young and it was dysfunctional and all these different things. But then we kind of got into a couple of things that I think are really important for us to lay again as a foundation for this week. One is this, is that God has a dream for your life. Maybe you've never thought about that, but God has a very specific dream in relationship to him for your life. Matter of fact, I, I say it this way, God actually created you with a very special capacity of a, as a human being to have a relationship with a creator that no other created thing has. God has a special place for you in his life, and it's his God dream for you. That's, that's the first thought. The, the th second thought, the second thought, Second, there we go. I was spelled second with a T-H. Um, they are not always welcome. So when you get a God dream, here's what's probably going to happen. Those that don't have God dreams aren't going to like it. Matter of fact, they're going to say, uh, I'd rather you not share that. I'd rather you not live that. I'd rather you just be quiet about that. Matter of fact, I don't even like you because of that. I mean, it's just not welcome. And I've got to know that there's going to be obstacles and challenges to the God dream that he has for your life. In other words, God intends for you to experience this tree, tree of life, but in reality, there are going to be some challenges. And so we need to understand that right up front. And then the last thing is we talked about how there's a reason for the dreams. Many times God gives you dreams, uh, dreams whether it be a Martin Luther King kind of dream, I have a dream of destiny of what I believe, or, or, a, or an actual dream in the night that he might be warning you, he might be uh, giving you a promise, there might be a pronouncement. I mean, there's all these different ideas that go with these dreams, but there's a reason. And sometimes it's actually God gives you a dream and hopes that you would be prepared for what he's going to do in your life. He's getting you ready. And that's kind of what's happening with Joseph. So, so all that's to, to build it up. So in a little bit of background for Joseph. Joseph was 17 when all this was happening. He was the 11th of 12 sons that were the sons of Jacob in Genesis chapter 37. All right, you can read the whole story. He was, Joseph was, Jacob's favorite, which caused problems in the family. Anytime you have favoritism in the family, it's going to cause problems. This was causing problems. And Joseph was the dream that Jacob had come alive, that he would have this life with his, his wife, Rachel, and they would have kids. And it was not until the 11th son came around that it actually happened with Rachel. She ends up dying. And here is Joseph, and Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. And it caused a lot of problems. Okay, that's part of the story. He had, Joseph had a couple dreams, and we talked about the dreams last week. That, that revealed his family would someday bow down before him. And we paraphrased last week and said, hey, I'm going to be your master. You're going to be my slaves. You're going to bow down before me. And how many know if little brothers tell older brothers that, it just doesn't go real well, right? That's what happened. They go, what do you think? Who do you think you are? You know, the little punk kid, little daddy's boy. I mean, that, that was kind of the story that was going on. And so this tension is happening in the family. And, and because he was the favorite and because of the dreams, he wasn't very popular with his brothers. And so he was hanging back with Jacob and his other brother, Benjamin, and the 10 older brothers were out gazing their flocks, grazing, grazing their flocks in a far off 
field, right? I mean, that's the story. And Joseph is told by Jacob, go and check on your brothers to see how two things. The flocks are doing, because he was really concerned about his flocks, but he was also concerned that his brothers weren't up to no good because they had times when they were up to no good. He said, go check on them, which sending Joseph to go do that, we'll just assume that that's God's plan, right? So here's where we pick it up. Genesis chapter 37, verse 18. So when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. Now, this is an interesting thought. You've got to kind of get your mind around what's going on. I, I grew up in south-central Nebraska. In south-central Nebraska, we have big rolling hills and big flat areas of farm fields. But there's areas where you can be on a rolling hill, and there's no trees. There's just, it's just fields. You could see somebody miles away. You could see them miles away. And that's kind of the story I think that's happening here. They see him miles away, maybe coming over. And then you're like, well, how do they know it's him? Here's how they knew it was him. The coat that the father had given him. It was a coat of many colors and it represented the favoritism that Joseph had, but it also represented to the brothers the favoritism that they didn't have. And so they saw Joseph in the distance with this coat, and they go, here he comes. And, and that's what's happening. So then it goes on, it says, as he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, exclamation mark. I mean, it's almost sarcastic. Here comes that dreamer. Man, that, that little punk, that, that daddy's boy, they said. And then verse 20 says, come on, let's kill him. Let's, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can then tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. And they're just, they're, they're upset about what God is doing in or through or supposing to do in there. All right, that opposition again. Verse 21, but when Reuben, the oldest, heard of their scheme, they were scheming, he came to Joseph's rescue Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern. A cistern was simply a well, an empty well. Let's throw him into this well here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Kind of like he's thinking, you know, we're not going to be responsible for it. But Reuben really was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. They weren't happy with this robe because of what it meant. He says they ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern, threw him into the well, threw him into that place of darkness. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. And just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite, Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd, we'd have to cover up the crime. Instead, it's like, I got an idea. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he's our brother our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. And so the Ishma when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern, out of the well, and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. 
All right, so here's the story. All right, and let me just fast forward a little bit with the rest of the story because I'm not reading the whole chapter. I'm just reading a portion of it. Reuben then comes back to the well. They threw him in, and he's gone. And he is upset because he knows that, that something terrible is happening. He said, hey, we sold him. And he knows how it's going to affect the father and, and losing his favorite son. He knows, man, this is not going to go well. This is terrible. And so he comes back and Joseph is gone. And his brothers then put together this whole story and conspire a story of cover-up to tell the father Jacob. And they bring back with them this coat that represented the favoritism of God and have put blood on it from some lambs or whatever, or sheep, you know, however they did, to make it look as though he was ripped up by animals out in the wild, and he's just gone. And, and so this whole lie and story. And so then Joseph, though, ends up as a slave in Egypt under Potiphar, which we're going to pick up that story next week. But in the middle of this, there's some lessons to be learned. In our text today, there's some lessons. And I want to talk about two things today. I want to talk about dream killers, and I want to talk about how to keep your dream alive when you're in a well. I want to talk about those two things, dream killers and how to keep your dream alive when you're in a well. Let me just ask the first question. What kills the God dreams in our lives? What kills them? What, I asked Jennifer that yesterday. I just said, hey, what kills them? I mean, I think immediately we all think fear. Fear kills our dreams, right? And we think things like doubt. And I think those are very real. Doubt kills our dreams and, you know, and, and maybe distraction. I mean, we, we can kind of come up with some other things that maybe are part of this, this idea. But I think often what kills our dreams is an unawareness of the schemes that are turning inside of our own hearts. That there's something in us that actually causes a greater problem with that is outside of us. In other words, there's some things that are happening that are actually represented in the brothers that can easily be happening in us that are actually going to kill our dreams that God is wanting us to be part of. In other words, where we were intended to be. And so all of this is taking place. And so if we look at the brothers, we can see the schemes of the heart that seeks to kill the dream. And so let me give you four of them real quick now, right out of the text, all right? Right out of the, what's happening in this story. Here's the first one. Is that dream killer number one is the brothers were filled with jealousy. Jealousy. Actually, if you go back to verse 11, Genesis 37, 11, it specifically actually says the brothers were je jealous of Joseph. But now you get it in this sarcastic statement, here comes the dreamer. It's almost like they resent who Joseph is because they don't have what Joseph has. And there's a resentment or a jealousy that's part of this story that is actually causing the dream to be killed or attempted to be killed in what was going on. Here's a, here's a proverb, Proverb 14, verse 30. It says, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. There's peace in my heart. Leads to a healthy body. My life is, it, there's not strain or striving or, you know, strife and all those things. But jealousy is like cancer in the bones. So let me give you a little paraphrase of that. What that means is that jealousy will eat away at who I am and keep me from the dream. Jealousy will eat away at my heart and who I am as a person and keep me from the dream. And so how, do, how does that happen? Why is it so dangerous? Well, obviously, we want what we don't have and resent what others do have. I mean, that's bad. We get that. We understand that. 
But here's what happens, though. As we spend all of our energy, time, and focus on what we lack instead of what God can provide. We give all of our attention to what we don't have instead of focusing on what God could do. When the brothers here, what they were doing, they were so caught up in their jealousy and their resentment that they couldn't even remotely think that maybe God is doing something in our brother. They couldn't get there. They couldn't see that because of the jealousy. And so here's, here's kind of what happens then. When we're filled with discontentment, which that's what really jealousy is, we'll do anything sometimes to alleviate the pain of that. So here's what happens. And a lot of us might be here today, and you could come up and tell your story about how you wanted something so bad that you did something you shouldn't have done to get what you wanted, and now look what's happened. It's a mess because of that want of something that I didn't have. I just wasn't content in the moment, or maybe I wasn't looking towards God to provide what he could provide, and I try to provide it myself. And so we get lost in there, and here's what happens. There's no room for the dream. Jealousy takes the place where the dream should have grown. Jealousy fills the spot. Instead of me saying, Lord, do what you want to do. I want to be where you want me to be, and I want to be a part of what you're doing. Instead of that, I'm saying, Lord, I'm comparing myself to that person. I'm jealous of that person. I'm jealous of that. I resent that, and it fills my heart and kills the dream. And that's what was happening. So here's another thing that happens is that jealousy will cause you to live in a constant state of the if-onlys. If-onlys. This idea that if only I had that situation, or if only I was in that marriage relationship. If only I had that promotion. If only I had that kind of money. If only, if only, if only. And we always have an if-only. And it keeps us from the dream. Because it's built on and based on this idea of jealousy in the heart. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Dream killer number two. And this is really the big one. Is that they were consumed with bitterness. They were consumed with bitterness. Notice what they said. They said, come now, let's kill him. What a statement. Our own flesh and blood... I can't imagine ever saying that about my own brother or my own family member. Come now, let's kill him. What, what, what gets a person to a point and a group of people to a point where they would be willing to kill their own family member? How, how could that even happen? How, how could it be that a group of men that would get so to the point that they would see a brother with a coat that they did not like and know that he stood for a dream that they didn't want to be a part of, that they would get to the point where let's kill him. And the only answer is bitterness. The only answer is bitterness. That they were offended by what Joseph stood for. They were offended by the dream. They were offended by the favoritism. They were offended to the point where now they had taken that on and it had become a poisonous root of bitterness deep within his soul. And it had grown up to the point where now it wanted to take on vengeance. That's how it happened. This bitterness idea was growing in them. And see, the brothers, they had this thing. And here's, here's what's interesting. If you go back a little bit in the story, the first few verses that we read last week, it was already there. It just had it manifested itself, and let's kill the brother. 
It was already happening because it said in the first few verses of the first part of 37 that they couldn't say a nice word to him because many times bitterness starts right here when it comes out of my mouth. Bitterness starts in me being critical and judgmental and hateful and sarcastic with my words. That's where it starts. It comes out there. You're like, ooh, man, that's ugly. And you know it's ugly. And then when it grows up, it kills. When it grows up, it kills. It kills the person that it's targeted on, and it kills the person that it's in and who they are. Here's a verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. It says, look after each other. In other words, care for one another. Take care of each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Let me give you the paraphrase there. So that none of you misses out on what God's intended life for you to be. Don't miss out on this. And he says, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you and corrupt many, which is an interesting thought because it's not like, well, it just it only affects me. No, it actually, it's poison in you and poison coming out of you, and it affects all kinds of things. So it's killing your dream, and it's affecting the dreams of the people around you at the same time. And they were consumed with this bitterness, consumed with that. So I have a question for you. As I was praying through this, uh, have you been offended? I'm just asking that to let it sink in a little bit. Have you been offended by a family member? By a coworker? By a brother, a sister, by a friend? By a spouse? Have you been offended? Because here's the thing is if I didn't handle the offense right, because a, a bitterness is an offense not forgiven. It never was resolved. It was never taken care of. And I just kind of pushed it under the mat. I just kind of pushed it away. I didn't really deal with it. And it's still there. It might be festering. The smile might be happening. But inside, there's something going on. And I just want to challenge you to do something about it. Because it's killing your dream. It's killing your dream. It's killing your dream. A couple, last year I was out in our backyard and we got kind of a wooded area in our backyard and, and I love it. And I was out there doing something and a couple days later I came back and I had this like rash on my legs. I'm like, what in the world's going on? And then it spread. I mean, I even had to go in and get a shot. I mean, it was just every, I had it on my arms. I had it, I mean, it's like, what in the world? It was poison oak. And so I went out and I located the little barmits. You know, I'm like, there they are. You know, I got my weed killer, you know, the, the big gallon jug, you know, that you buy. And I did, that's me spraying the weed killer. And I'm spraying it all over this weed. And I'm like, man, I'm going to get you. You got me. I'm getting you. You know, I'm spraying. I, just, I mean, I'm just looking for like an atomic bomb of death. I just want everything. Just die, you know. And, and I, I didn't think much about it. Well, I came back out this year. I hadn't even went in that same area in our backyard. And it's not like I got such a big backyard and never go in the same area. I just hadn't noticed it. And I walked by, and I seen a little patch of it. I was like, that little thing is still alive. And I looked over, there's a bigger patch of it. And I looked over there, and there's a bigger patch. And then I noticed that I was standing in the midst of this poison oak. And I'm like, it's everywhere. And I just went like this, it's on. And so I went, I got the spray stuff, and I'm spraying. I sprayed like a whole gallon of this stuff on this thing. 
Came back a couple weeks later. I think it made it grow better. I mean, it was like bigger, <laughs> stronger, you know, thing. I was like, and so I did some research. I found out that poison oak, poison ivy, sumac doesn't die with your normal, easy, off-the-shelf stuff you get. You got to get the high-powered stuff. So I went and got the high-powered stuff, you know, and I got it, and I sprayed it, and I spray. I mean, I'm spraying bushes. I'm spraying. I mean, I'm again. I just want death everywhere. You know, I'm spraying, I'm spraying, I'm spraying, I'm spraying. And finally, I just went out a couple days ago. This is just recent news, hot off the press. The little varmints are dying, all right? But here's the point, is that when you have a bitter root, sometimes the normal easy route isn't going to take care of it. Sometimes just going through the motions of, I forgive them, I'm cool, no, there's nothing going on, <laughs> that's not a good enough. Because here's what has to happen many times when you've got a bitterness in your heart because of offense. And it might have been when you were a kid. It might have been last year. It might, who, who knows what it is? That you've got to get aggressive with it and expose it. You've got to get aggressive with it and place heavy doses of grace upon it and heavy doses of forgiveness. That's the only way you get free from bitterness. And see, some of us, we've never thought. We just said, oh, well, it doesn't really bother me. It does. And you've got to deal with it accordingly. So bitterness. Here's the third one. Third one and fourth one I'll just do real quickly. is dream killer number three is attempt to separate. Attempt to separate or isolate. That word would actually fit there. It says this is what they said. Let's throw them into the empty cistern. And then later on they say, that's not good enough. That's not far enough. Let's send them to Egypt. Let's get him out of here. Let's get him out of our presence. And there's kind of two flip sides to this. And one of them is, is the dream killers are often, uh, excuse me, the brothers thought if we can just get him away from us and from his father, the dream will die. And in some ways, that's not true at all because you can't ever separate yourself from the God. You can go, the psalmist said, you can go into the very depths of hell and, and the Lord will follow you there and chase after you because he's pursuing you. You can't get away from God's love, Okay. But I can separate myself from God's people, God's promises, God's power, God's spirit. I can do that. I can resist. I can push away from those things. And so sometimes the dream killer in our lives is simply that we pushed away or created isolation in our lives, and it causes problems. Here's the fourth one. Is dream killer number four is driven by greed. And I didn't have this one in my notes until just yesterday or actually Friday, and it says, they said this, Judas said, what will we gain if we do this? Let's sell him. And I thought to myself, wow, that's an interesting little thought that many times what kills the dream that God wants to have for us is some kind of thought that we need to make life all about what I can profit from it versus my acceptance of what God's doing. That we get more caught up in the gain personally than we do in the advancement of the kingdom of God for his glory. That we lose ourselves in that idea. So that was part of it. So let me go to the second thing I want to talk about. So that's dream killers. Let's talk about how to keep the dream alive when you're in a well. And here's my assumption for this today. My assumption is that many of us here in the room right now are in a dark place. Not because you're some bad, evil, wicked person. Life's happened. <laughs> the dream isn't coming to be because life is happening. 
and you find yourself in a well. All of a sudden, you didn't know how you got here, but man, you are separated, and it seems impossible, and the dark place that you're a part of is this well experience, and maybe it went from well to a cell, which that's what happened to to Joseph. Maybe that's where you're at, but I'm going to assume that a lot of us here today understand spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally, that somehow, someway, I might be in a well, and I need to hold on to the drink. And so I want to start with that understanding, that life happens and we find ourselves in a dark spot. Maybe it's self-inflicted, maybe it's not, but we're there. So here was my first thought. What was Joseph thinking when he got thrown in a well? What was he thinking? I'm just asking the question. What if, I mean, if you're 17 years old and you just went out to check on your 10 brothers and they said, hey, we're going to kill you. No, we're not going to kill you. We're going to throw you in this well because we don't really like you and we're going to make it look like it was uh, you know, an accident, all these different things. What was he thinking in the bottom of the well? And I think there's three things that kept him alive with his dream. Three things. And here's the first one is that I think it's important that we look up, not down. Look up, not down. See, Joseph Joseph had a choice in the will that he could allow his natural feelings to run wild. Naturally, it would have made sense for him just to be overcome with fear, to be overcome with feelings of abandonment or alone or unloved or unworthy or I deserve this. I mean, just could he could have easily had a pity party and just looked down into the dirt and said, "Me, oh my, I can't believe I'm here." Or he could look up. Which I think is you're in a well, you've got to decide. Am I going to just look down? I can't believe I'm here. I'm going to look up and say, man, is there a possibility? Is there a chance that I might get out of this well? Is there a way that somehow, some way, God's going to move in my circumstance, in my situation? I'm not going to look down. I'm going to look up. I read an article this week about prisoner of war, uh, World War II prisoners of war. And it said an interesting thing because I typed in dreams and stuff like that. And I was just Googling stuff. And it came it popped up and it said during the war that many of those that survived the war did so because they learned how to find strength from their dreams. They didn't look at their situation. They looked at what God or whoever was sharing with them, this idea. And so they would have dreams about eating at banquet tables, and they would have dreams about running and hugging their family members, and they would have dreams about running in fields and healthy and doing all kinds of work. And they would get up the next day and say, hey, I had a dream, and it was this dream, and they would share it with one another, and it became almost like like gospel. And it was interesting because what was going on in their bodies wasn't good, but what was going on in their minds was freeing. And see, some of us, we need to understand that we've got to choose to look up, not down. Look up, not down. Here's here's a verse that says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Just that idea that we would somehow look up, not down. Here's the second one, is that we would hold on to the promises. See, God gave Joseph a dream that was a promise of success. And God has a dream for your life that's a promise of success. And somehow I've got to hold on to the promise in the midst of the struggle to know in my heart that no matter what happens, that God's promises will happen sooner or later. Some way, somehow, the dreamer always believes that God is going to come through. The promises are true with God no matter what my circumstances are. God's going to come through. I'm holding on to that. And I think Joseph had that mindset. 
2 Samuel 22, verse 31 says, God's way is perfect. Sometimes I read that and go, Lord, I don't know if it's perfect, but I have to know where I'm at and what's going on is in line with your sovereignty and your rule and your wisdom. It's not about what I think it is. It's about what you're doing. He goes on. He says, all the Lord's promises prove true. In other words, they all come to be. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. And see, this is where I struggle. I'll just be very transparent with you. This is where I personally battle is to hold on to the promises because sometimes I doubt that I can be the, God, the person that God dreams me to be. I doubt that God's going to come through. I doubt that he's going to build this amazing church, even though there's this dream in my mind for this incredible, life-changing machine that God wants us to be a part of it. Sometimes I wrestle to hold on to the promise. But I know if the dream's going to stay alive, I've got to hold on to it. I can't give up on it. I can't let go of it and say, oh, well, I just don't think it's going to happen. God, you're going to come through somehow, some way, you're going to make it happen. I have to resist the lies. And see, some of us here today, we don't resist the lies. We embrace them. We just grab a hold of them, say, it's never going to happen. God's never going to do anything. It's never going to work out. I don't know what's going to happen. It's probably going to be bad, Right? And we just have this down, 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 depressed thing and don't realize that God is going to come through somehow. So what do I hold on to? I hold on to God's character because it's bigger than my circumstances. I hold on to God's faithfulness because it's bigger than my fear. I hold on to God's power because it's greater than my problem. I hold on to God's wisdom because it's greater than my own understanding. I hold on to the promise because God is faithful. That's what Joseph did. See, it's believing God's promises are true, even though my temporary situation is saying it's not. And sometimes the biggest issue in keeping the dream alive is just simply understanding that the pain is temporary. It's temporary. Last one. And this one I think is the big one. Actually, obviously, I think all of them are really big for our lives. Look up, not down. Hold on to the promises. Third one is this, is to know in your heart that God loves you. I don't mean like a little kid song. I'm talking, I know, I know he loves me. Because here was the issue that was happening that was part of this story, is that keeping the dream alive is knowing that even though you are in a dark place, you are still the favored son of your father. That even though Joseph was in the well, in his heart of hearts, and he knowing he was still Jacob's favorite. Let me say it another way. That just because the robe has been removed does not mean the favor is gone. See, some of us, we confuse the fact that maybe we're going through a hard time. We think because we're going through a hard time, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't see me. God doesn't like me. It's, it's evident because I'm going through a difficult time. That's not true. I have to know in my heart that God loves me no matter what my circumstance or what my situation is. 1 John 4, verse 16 says it this way. We know how much God loves us. We know how much he loves us. In the middle of my crazy situation, I know he loves me in this well. And we have put our trust in his, notice what it says, in his love. Romans chapter 8, verse 38, it says, And I am convinced that nothing... Can you say nothing with me? Nothing. 
can separate us from God's love. God's love is consistent. It isn't going to give up on you. It's always there. Let me just ask this question. If you lost your job or you lost your health or you didn't get the promotion or or the marriage blew up or, or all these different things, would you still know in your heart that still you are God's loved child? You have to know that. You have to know that because otherwise you won't survive the well. You won't survive that. It's all about knowing that I am loved by God no matter what my situation is. See, some of us, we struggle to dream again and keep the dream alive because our identity is found in what we do or in our accomplishments or in our performance, and it's not in who we are or who God says I am. You're loved. Jennifer is an amazing wife. She is an encourager to the max sometimes. I mean, it's, it's an amazing gift that she has. She encourages me. She's also really annoying sometimes, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> She's an encourager. And she knows me. She knows that I battle with knowing that God could come through. She knows that sometimes I struggle with insecurity. She knows that I struggle with being a leader. <laughs> she knows that I struggle with these things. And over the years, She's really been good about encouraging me. Well, the last seven or eight years, every time I'd get a little down, she'd come up to me and say, listen to this. I said, I don't want to listen to anything. She said, no, you listen to this. I'm like, I don't want to listen to this. And she'd kind of like make me, and then I'd, I'd have to tell her, you're not the boss of me. And then she said, right now I'm the boss of you. And then we'd have, to, you know. And I'd finally say, okay. And, and she'd take her phone, and she'd stick it right up to my ear, and she'd play this message of a pastor talking about God's love. And every time I listened to it, I realized it was speaking to my heart because I didn't feel loved. I felt like my situation was telling me that God didn't love me. I felt like my situation is telling me that God didn't care about me, that my well moment and the darkness of my moment, because I, I would battle depression or whatever, that he didn't care about me. And she'd give me that, and I'd hear, he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. He sees past all this stuff, and he's never going to change his mind about you. He loves you. 